0: Finally this evening, let's uh, welcome Dr. Jordan Dorney. He is a Fellow of History at New St. Andrews College where he teaches the Sophomore History Colloquium along with various electives in History and Political Theory. He is also Assistant Director of the Classical Christian Studies Program at NSA which offers a low residency Master of Studies degree and graduate certificate. Dr. Dorney holds a PhD in political science from the University of Notre Dame. And the title of his talk this evening is Xenophon and Socratic Libertarianism. So please welcome Jordan.
1: As long as we're uh, retitling talks, maybe to spice mine up a bit and make it seem more like it fits in with the rest, uh, maybe I should change it to Xenophon and Socratic Christendom. Uh, And the power of that joke uh, it, that shoe's going to drop maybe in 20 minutes, so hold that uh, for a bit. Uh, there's some biblical warrant for that, uh, though it may take some time to get that on the table. Uh, I, uh, though to make two points on, on a title, to be really self-indulgent here, uh, I thought that I at least ought not to be uh, so cowardly as to put a question mark. Uh, at the end of this title, Xenophon and Socratic Libertarianism, uh, and that I would offer you a more definitive statement in that direction. Uh, So uh, now to make three points on the title, I think that it breaks down really into these two parts. Uh, And so the presentation tonight, uh, in it I'll try to uh, do two things. One, introduce the political writings of this person, Xenophon, uh, who is the greatest student of Socrates' at least the greatest student whose name isn't Plato. So I'll spend some time talking about him. Uh, And then second, I will try to, I will try to provide a defense of natural liberty as well as a skeptical perspective uh, toward various attempts to subsume that liberty in or under political life. Uh, So first things, uh, first, uh, a bit about Xenophon. So uh, he is also a student of Socrates, like Plato. There you go. Now you have something to work with. Uh, Xenophon uh, is, uh, has gone through a, a roller coaster uh, reputation-wise. Uh, at various points, he has been thought of extraordinarily highly and at various points extraordinarily lowly, uh, both for his philosophical seriousness and for his uh, literary character, uh, as well as for his quality as a historian. Uh, He has been said to have uh, been possessed of, uh, in his writings and in his person perhaps, uh, a certain noble simplicity and quiet grandeur. And uh, as often as those things are in vogue, Xenophon has been in vogue, which is not very often. Uh, If you're familiar with... With the Platonic corpus, you know that it consists of various dialogues, and traditionally these have been uh, uh, organized in, in a, a set of tetralogies, set of four dialogues, uh, and there's something uh, nice and organized about that. Uh, and based on that introduction, you know that I'm about to say that Xenophon's writings are not like that at all. Uh, they are a mixture of, of, of things, various genres. They're not all dialogues, although some of them are. Uh, and they can't quite be uh, situated in that uh, nice way. And this uh, speaks to something about uh, Xenophon's style and his approach to uh, teaching political philosophy. Uh, but I uh, will explain the, the corpus a bit first and then uh, fill in the gaps there with uh, what that means for his method. So this ju- just to give you a grasp of Xenophon, since I think for a variety of reasons he's relatively unknown, uh, even among those that... Uh, enjoy a good classical education, uh, so uh, one way we can divide two sets of works uh, by Xenophon uh, is to think in terms of heroes and the two great heroes for Xenophon are Socrates and Cyrus, and Cyrus is the one that we 're going to talk about uh, a bit tonight uh, for uh, for Socrates, he does have a set of dialogues the memorabilia the Oikonomicus, the household manager, uh, the symposium, and the Apology of Socrates uh, that corresponds in some ways and in some ways not uh, with Plato's by the same name. So those four uh, might fall under the heading of the Socratic writings. And then on the other side, as if to compete with Socrates as the potential hero uh, for the person who is going to read Xenophon, uh, you have two works dedicated to Cyrus, except Uh, we have to throw a wrench into this because they're not dedicated to the same Cyrus. Uh, We have these two works, the Anabasis of Cyrus and the Paideia, the Education of Cyrus, except one is Cyrus the Great and the other is Cyrus the uh, Not-So-Great or Cyrus the Younger, as I'm sure he would have preferred to be called. Uh, And uh, we're somewhat justified, though, in collapsing the distinction between these Cyruses uh, because Xenophon uh, has Socrates do this, has Socrates make this joke at one point in the Socratic uh, writings. That he, he can't remember uh, uh, who he's talking about and he, he confuses the two, so we have good justification like Socrates to confuse the two. So there you go, the Socratic writings and the Cyrus uh, writings, two potential heroes uh, to emulate. Then we have this uh, uh, odd collection of three short works, the minor works, Uh, to do them injustice, uh, which have to do with educating readers in very particular, extremely particular arts. So you have one short work on the cavalry commander, one on hunting with dogs, or just hunting, uh, depending on how you want to render that. I like hunting with dogs. And the third on horsemanship. Now those all seem to have something to do with war, Uh, But uh, they all have to do with sort of uh, uh, arts that are subordinate to the art of generalship in the most broad sense uh, or these other arts that are connected with war but kind of are on the side over here uh, as, as hunting and as horsemanship are. Uh, the only weird thing with these is when you open them up, you find out that there's all sorts of things that are not just technical descriptions of how you ought to go hunting with dogs. Uh, and in that particular case, it opens with the list of all these various hunters uh, in the classical tradition that were taught uh, ultimately by Apollo uh, and then oftentimes uh, by the centaur Chiron uh, to hunt. Uh, and this uh, is, seems to be equated almost with political philosophy itself. And so there's a whole puzzle there. So whatever those works, uh, wherever you want to stick them, they seem to be about arts related to war, and they turn out to be about much more than that. Then the final way of distinguishing things uh, for a Greek, you can divide the world into two parts, Greece and everybody else. Uh, And so Xenophon also uh, does this in a way, uh, except uh, he does it in a book which he calls Greek stuff, the Hellenica. And uh, this book, uh, contrary to its name, contains... Greek stuff and non-Greek stuff, but uh, there you go. Uh, So if you take these two parts, you have Greeks and barbarians. On the barbarian side, you have the Hellenica itself, but then you have also those works about the Cyruses. Under the Greeks, you have the two great representatives, the two alternatives, the two ways. You have the Spartans and the Athenians. And so Xenophon has a constitution of the Spartans and a constitution of the Athenians. He then has a book on... uh, economics, properly speaking, or at least in the way that, that we speak of it, called Ways and Means, uh, uh, that falls under the heading of Athenian things because it's about economics in Athens. Then the second work for the Spartans is uh, introduces a new uh, problem. Uh, it is not called uh, Sparta. It's not called kingship. It's called Agesilaus, who is uh, a king of Sparta who Xenophon became friends with, but it is about kingship. And the final work is uh, uh, can be contrasted with that, uh, and that is his dialogue, the Hiero, which is about tyranny, uh, and is not about uh, Sparta, but in fact about Syracuse, and Syracuse's relationship to Greece is another one of these problems. Uh, it, they're kind of Greeks, and they're kind of not, so Hiero sort of sticks out like a sore thumb on the side here, and deals with tyranny as opposed to the Agesilaus, which deals with kingship, except the Hiero also deals with poetry, because it's this Problem of the relationship, uh, as often arises between uh, those with lots of money and power and those who have neither of those and no means to get them except by uh, coming up with poems. Uh, and so there is all sorts of interesting things going on there. Uh, but uh, th- there you go. There is the scheme of Xenophon's work uh, works, and now you uh, have something at least to to stick your hat on as we go through all of this. So. Uh, I'm a fellow of history at NSA now, so I better give you some dates before we get too far. Uh, but you can tell my interest in things by prioritizing the texts over the, over the life. Uh, but there you go. Uh, if you want some dates, uh, I can give you some made-up ones. 430 to 355, sort of. Unless this story that's told about Xenophon about getting rescued by Socrates uh, during a particular battle is true, in which case he probably wasn't like a baby during that, so maybe he was born in the in the 420s or something like that, uh, and uh, because of the way that uh, the Greek calendar works, uh, maybe he was maybe he died in 354 or 355. Uh, one has to figure out those things. Uh, so there you go. You can situate now him uh, in in that period. Uh, all right. Now we can go back to this comparison between Xenophon uh, and Plato uh, very quickly. Well, what's the problem with Plato? The problem with Plato is uh, those of us that like reading him are a little squishy. Uh, we don't get out in the sun very much. We get, we're a little pale. Uh, and so there's a, a bit of a problem about getting a certain kind of person, a certain kind of young man especially excited about doing political philosophy if Plato is all there is. So Xenophon comes along and he can deal with The rough and tumble people as well. So, Xenophon in his writing uh, has this kind of double method that corresponds in some ways to that scheme that I just gave you of his works. Uh, You can see why there's something in there for everyone, including the rough people and the not so rough people. Uh, But he does this at the level of just, you know, sentences and paragraphs and the stories that he tells. Uh, uh, He is uh, writing in kind of two ways at all times. So, he talks about noble, good, true things, and then he also tells. Body jokes and uh, relates bloody uh, battles, Uh, and you can imagine which kind of guy likes which kind of thing. Uh, So that with Xenophon, you have a serious playfulness or a playful seriousness. Uh, He has this principle uh, where uh, he says all the good stuff, and then he tells you about all the bad stuff he's not telling you about. So there's a bit of a trick there. That's, of course, different than just talking about the good stuff and not talking about the bad stuff. The uh, result of all of this is that, uh, again, his historical reception, uh, not quite so good as Plato's. I mean, people will complain about Plato again. He's otherworldly, all that other stuff that people will say, whatever. Uh, Xenophon, uh, he's sort of both serious and unserious. He's unserious in the sense that his philosophy is not all that, uh, all that uh, impressive, uh, supposedly. It's not true, of course. Uh, and he's really serious because he's dull and dry and boring and horrible to read, says all the people that don't read him. Uh, the effect of this, again, has been that we have Platonism. That's a school of philosophy, and uh, no one's ever heard of Xenophontism. But it turns out, and this uh, really gets beyond uh, uh, the limits of what I can get through here, but it turns out that as you work with these two, they start looking a whole lot more like each other. Plato, it turns out, also has bloody and body bits. And uh, Xenophon has uh, high metaphysical musings as well. So uh, th- there's, there's something intentional about this uh, and uh, much more that could be said, but I'll put a pin in it. So there's the first part. The second part, uh, natural liberty and Socratic political philosophy. It seems like if I'm going to speak to some libertarians, I should talk about liberty. And I think there are some things in the Socratic approach that Xenophon exemplifies that are useful for keeping in mind, uh, for this. So one is a presumption against authority. So this especially, I think, uh, if we're thinking in political terms means laws and rulers, they get questioned, uh, Uh, But other authorities like poets, uh, they also get questions uh, even if this only happens indirectly. Uh, So there may be uh, some things to work with there. The second uh, piece here that I think contributes to a certain idea of liberty is the priority of the individual soul. Uh, So that the human good, whatever that is, is tied to the education of the individual toward virtue, whatever that is. And then the third Item here is a kind of anti cosmopolitan uh, character. So often philosophy is right, uh, s- supposed to be very cosmopolitan, right? It, it lifts you up out of uh, the environment in which you find yourself, and so that you're no longer just an Athenian or an American or, or whatever, uh, but you are, you know, you're engaged in the realm of ideas, and this is very nice and fancy and leads to all sorts of things. Uh, except uh, Socrates has this weird commitment to Athens. He doesn't like leaving it, he fights for it. Uh, he has some, he, some kind of attachment there. So th- th- again, we could develop this more, but uh, those three things, presumption against authority a priority for the individual soul and a kind of anti-cosmopolitan intent. I think those three things together form the basis for thinking about Socratic political philosophy uh, and Xenophon's presentation of that in those terms. So then for the rest of this time, I want to talk about the, uh, a particular work. This is The Education of Cyrus, the Paideia of Cyrus uh, the Great. Uh, And this is uh, one place where I think you see those three things play themselves out uh, in in quite interesting ways. Uh, So here, uh, you could start with the title. I started with my own title, so I should at least start with Xenophon's title. Uh, Why is it called The Education of Cyrus? Machiavelli, for instance, when he recommends everybody go out and read Xenophon, he calls it The Life of Cyrus. Uh, and, and Xenophon could have called it that. Uh, of course, you have the problem the education of Cyrus, what does that mean? Does it mean Cyrus's education uh, in the sense it's the, the education he receives, or is it Cyrus's education the one that he gives you or the one that you get when you read Xenophon's book? Uh, why not call it the history of Cyrus? Xenophon supposedly is a historian, people accuse him of that. Uh, so why not call it the history of Cyrus? That would seem to be maybe a different kind of book. Why not call it the kingdom of Cyrus? If we're interested in the political side, most of all, why not make it about the kingdom or the empire of Cyrus? Or worse, why not call it the romance of Cyrus, the adventures of Cyrus? This is a a very depressing part of the reception history of Xenophon. Uh, There are a couple of sort of love stories uh, embedded in this, and uh, people decided that was the Important part, and uh, extracted that out of Xenophon's book and made the romance of a couple of these characters, uh, one of whom is the the most Xenophon calls the most beautiful woman in all of Asia, uh, and uh, her husband. Uh, it is not the adventures or the romance of Cyrus; it's the education of Cyrus. But there are some other ways that he could have gone. Uh, the again, the title is uh, the education, and it's designed as I said, as as is fundamental to Xenophon's approach, to deal with at least two kinds of people, the rough people and the refined people. He wants to get them both, get them all. Uh, And he begins the book then with a certain uh, common sense, uh, a set of ideas that are are common sense, Uh, maybe for both groups, uh, though we could try to spell out how it might vary. He begins with a great opening sentence. He says, the thought once occurred to us, popped into my brain one time, or our brain, uh, he includes us all in it, that, you know what, people are constantly rebelling. They they rebel against the king because they want a republic. They rebel against the oligarchy because they want a king. They rebel against this guy because they want that guy. They rebel against this guy because they don't want anybody. Uh, It seems like it's really hard to rule, and no one really wants you uh, to be there. Huh. Wouldn't it be nice if we knew how to rule everyone? When you look at, like, cows and sheep and stuff, the cows never have a revolt. Why can't we be like that? So there's this kind of, again, common sense starting point. Maybe we're not like cows and sheep and pigs, and we are not born to just be ruled by our rulers, this is what I think you might call, again, not just a common sense view, but a kind of natural libertarianism. We all feel that this is that this is true. There are a couple of wrenches in here. Again, uh, this is always what happens with Xenophon, because uh, he also applies this to the household. Turns out children sometimes don't like their parents. Servants sometimes don't like their masters. So maybe it's worse than we thought. Maybe we're not just natural libertarians, where we want more or less than that. Uh, so th- that, that, that problem looms over it. But in any case, all of that is swept off the board when another thought pops into our collective mind, when we remember that, that certain Cyrus, some Cyrus, some Cyrus guy, uh, this is a funny way that, that Sanofan puts it, when we remember this guy Cyrus, who made it look so easy, conquered so many people, he didn't even know what language they spoke. He still ruled them. Kind of like how, you know, I can't speak to a sheep or a pig or a cow. You can see the problem in there. So this common sense view is overwhelmed by the historical record. Although we might not feel like we, are, we deserve to be ruled by everybody, it looks like maybe somebody figured us out. And so we just better submit to this totalitarian state. So, this, uh, the education traces the career of Cyrus as he moves from uh, old Persia, this austere republic where you're not even, not even allowed to spit in front of people, because it shows you're, like, you're wasting your, your water, right? Uh, to Cyrus sitting on the throne in Babylon, surrounded by eunuchs wearing platform shoes and eye makeup and a wig. I don't know, I think both are scary. Uh, <laughs> When you read the book, though, it seems like Xenophon is really hyping up this guy Cyrus, right? So I said, this is—you have two choices for heroes when you read Xenophon: Cyrus or Socrates. And man, this Cyrus guy looks like something. Uh, everybody loves Cyrus. They're constantly talking about how remarkable his soul is, how handsome he is, men and women, right? This is what happens. Everybody loves Cyrus. Now, this is as nice as far as it goes, except when you put this in a political context, everything kind of gets a little creepy. Friendship, family, erotic desire, all of this gets redirected toward Cyrus in this grotesque, disgusting way. All the stuff that makes human life good in all of its various spheres, when it's all mashed together in the regime or in the empire, it's unsettling. And yet, he's just so good at it. So how do we get out of it? You know, he's just such a handsome guy. He's just so noble. He's just so brave. He's just so whatever. You know, darn it, I guess we better give him all the power. This, again, you can see how there's the common sense, natural libertarianism on the one side, and then almost this common sense reaction to someone of surpassing greatness. We get an extended picture of Cyrus's camp as he's conquering uh, both friends and enemies. Uh, Cyrus's camp is the place uh, not where everybody knows your name. It's the place where Cyrus knows your name. And at first you think, isn't this wonderful? Cyrus knows my name. Uh, Cyrus uh, at one point is has to order a bunch of his new allies who he's conquered or cajoled or bribed or whatever uh, into being part of his coalition, ultimately against the, the villain of the story, who is the king of Assyria. Uh, you know, read your Bibles for more. Uh, and uh, he says to all these guys that he's just, you know, met a few minutes ago, uh, almost, uh, he starts ra- rattling through all of their names, all the various lieutenants who he wants to go do this or that, go to this place, go to that place, make sure you do this, make sure you bring the cavalry over here, the spearmen over there, whatever it is. And he knows, them all, knows all their names and knows where they're from. And boy, they love that. And then Cyrus gives this speech uh, in earnest, seemingly, uh, where he says, yeah, right, because like a craftsman needs to know the name of all his tools, right? So they perceive of it as love, and he says, yeah, you're like my hammer, or like that whatever that kind of saw is I need for this kind of job, I I should know what its name is so I can ask somebody to bring it to me. I can't just be like, yeah, the one that's like, you know, whatever. This is the way that Cyrus uh, deals with it again. Uh, there's something, there's a big problem here because Cyrus, it seems so impressive, seems to overwhelm our natural libertarian sympathies. And yet it just is really gross uh, and really scary. But if man is supposed to be free, again, why is it so easy for Cyrus to do all of this, to conquer not only his enemies, but also his friends? And why does everyone keep giving up? Why does everyone love Cyrus so much that whether he pays them off or he uh, does something for them or even defeats them, uh, it turns into this love for Cyrus. This, this presents a problem. It's kind of, uh, in a way, the factual argument against libertarianism. This is, after all, what, what Xenophon had first indicated. Uh, he had this thought, and then this other thought popped in uh, it's, that, that seems to disprove it. Now, in the end, as I suggested, he ends up on the throne of Babylon, wearing platform shoes and eye makeup and a wig and all that other stuff and surrounded by eunuchs. Uh, In the end, it seems like he fails uh, at what he sets out to do because uh, not only is is all of that the case, uh, but he dies after giving this great speech to his sons about how they're not supposed to fight with each other, except what happens after Cyrus dies. the sons go to war and one kills the other and somebody impersonates the, the one son that's killed and you can read Herodotus for all of that. But... But does this really get us out of the problem? Is it a problem with Cyrus or is it a problem with us? Or or what are we looking for here? If man no longer looks like he's not made to be dominated but looks like he really is made to be dominated, what do we do with Cyrus's ultimate failure? What do we look for? And I think this then, to kind of move towards the end here, uh, there's three possibilities. And this depends on how we answer the question of whether man is a political animal. So let's say he that man is a political animal. Well, then we want to look for Cyrus 2.0. Even better, Cyrus. We assume that Cyrus must have made some mistake. He must have been corrupted at some stage. And we really do, after all, want the, the, the kingly art, this thing that Cyrus has been after uh, throughout uh, the text. We want someone who really possesses it Uh, In the usual sense, the kingly art, the the thing that the king needs to know, but to the highest degree, even more than Cyrus himself. And this kingly art is hierarchical, and it's highly structured, because the difference here between kingship and tyranny is that tyranny wants to remove all the layers, and kingship wants to have lots of layers. You don't want Cyrus speaking directly to everyone. Uh, You want him speaking to people who speak to someone else who speak to you. Uh, and uh, this this would seem to be a characteristic of, uh, of this Cyrus 2.0, this potential, again, if man is a political animal after all. The danger here, though, is Machiavelli's Cyrus uh, rearing his ugly or beautiful head. Uh, do we really want someone who's just even better than Cyrus at the whole political thing? Maybe we can talk about the ways in which he would protect political liberty, maybe the institutional constraints that would be placed on such a ruler would resolve the problems that we see with Cyrus. Uh, people invent these kind of nice readings, of, even of Machiavelli, to, to emphasize this, this sort of perspective. Uh, again, we would look for the mistakes that Cyrus might have made and, and fix them. Or there's just something fundamentally corrupt uh, with, with this whole thing. So then we might say, okay, well, Forget this political animal thing. It seems like man is, after all, not a political animal. Uh, We don't want him to be ruled in this way. In in which case, it seems like now we would push for resistance to all different kinds of of rule. And we would look for an alternative to that perfect political community in those other realms of life which Cyrus has suppressed. So we're looking at the 2.0 versions of all the other stuff that Xenophon brings up in this text. There's community or society uh, as, a, let's say, a sub-political thing. And, and we have various examples uh, in the work. We have the, the old Persian Republic. We have the Median Empire. We have a number of other uh, regimes that get some special attention. And in all those cases, there's something wrong with them, but we could fix it. And then that would, be, that would be nice, right? We want the austerity of old Persia, and we kind of want the, the pleasant times of, of, of old media uh, as well. But... Uh, you can see why maybe that introduces some problems. Or maybe friendship. Maybe that will be what solves all of this. We want our comrades. Uh, So all of those times that Cyrus presented his love for his men and his men's love for him, okay, he was corrupt, and, and that was a corrupt kind of love, but we want the real... Deal. That's what will satisfy us. We want that brotherly banter that we get in this great scene uh, that comes in the middle of the conquest. That uh, I call the the tent party uh, because they go into Cyrus's tent and they have a, a party and they tell jokes to each other. And here's where you get some of the the body jokes and the and the re- regaling each other with bloody stories. Uh, you know, maybe that's if we could only have the non-corrupt version of that. That would that would fix it because again, we're not political. We're social or we're uh, we're uh, we desire friendship, or or something like that. Or we have again this romance uh, between the most beautiful woman of Asia, Panthea, and Abradatus, her husband. Uh, they might have messed up because they bought into Cyrus's whole thing. But if only we could, you know, have real love, then that then we'd be satisfied. Or maybe the family. Cyrus and his father have this interesting relationship, and it almost seems like good, like a good father-son dynamic, except all the things that turn out to be corrupt and corrupting about it. And so maybe if we just solve that. So with all of these things, the difficulty is we, we hold out the hope that we could, if we could just fix this other area, if we run away from politics to something else, our problems would be solved, except Xenophon also seems to show that those things are not going to satisfy, uh, that we won't acquire that scientific knowledge, that we won't uh, be able to uh, carry this out in, in uh, having moved on from political life. The individual, the domestic, the political, all of it's a problem. So then, again, the question is, this, is this a more consistent libertarianism? Uh, politics is corrupt, and so is everything else. Uh, so we need to be more skeptical of, of every area of human life. That, that's one possibility. The other possibility uh, that Xenophon holds out is that philosophy uh, will fix this. Uh, if, what we can do is turn inward. Individual soul, individual liberty, all that stuff that I talked about, right? Uh, we can have self-rule. We, don't be, we won't be ruled externally. We'll rule ourselves. The question here then is, is this ultimately unpolitical, anti-political, or is it political in some some new and fancy way? I'm going to go with door number three for now uh, as I bring this to a conclusion. So let's say then again on this question, is man a political animal? Let's say he is, but it's not in that ordinary sense. We're not talking about Constitutional arrangements and how many senators we have, and and how long the president is president, or something like that. Uh, but we mean political in this deeper Socratic sense. Uh, we freedom from govern, government restraint then is not the ultimate principle of liberty that we're after, but a different kind of freedom. Uh, I said that that Socrates offers this, but I might I might say that there's there's two ways, and I won't say that they're the way of life and the way of death, but you can figure out which is which, uh, and. And you might say that they're the way of life and the way of death. Uh, in the first case, we have Socrates. Uh, and here you have the transformation of the kingly art into the life of political philosophy. So in, in the place of that political hierarchy, we have a kind of political epistemology. Our knowledge is organized by a supervening science. This is the Aristotelian idea of the architectonic science, uh, of which a little tiny branch is that thing that people call philosophy. Uh, this is the opposite of a tyrannical epistemology which levels all knowledge and, and cuts out all of the intervening things where, where uh, knowledge itself just sort of speaks directly to everything underneath it. That would be, that would be tyranny in, in the realm of science or in the realm uh, of political philosophy. This is, what the, this is what Socrates seems to offer and we have uh, a taste of this in one episode in the text when we have uh, a mention from the prince of Armenia, the story of his tutor who is killed by his father because uh, he teaches him to you know, not listen to his father as much anymore, which is what happens uh, with philosophy. So then uh, there, with that little story, we reintroduce the problem of politics. Uh, this, if we were avoiding something pernicious and corrupt and corrupting, it seems like we've reinvented the wheel, and Socrates now uh, is corrupting the youth instead of Cyrus. Of course, the other side, the other way, uh, is that we look not to Cyrus— the anointed one, not Cyrus the Christ, but the other one, Uh, and to his union of the kingly art and wisdom in his his own person. And here, I would just then deflect all questions and all attention back to the previous discussion, because this would introduce questions about whether Christ's kingship makes human rule, human politics more or less important. Uh, Does he make it so that no one else needs to be king, just him? Or does he make it so that all Christian kings have to be a certain way? Is the Socratic desire for a political epistemology fulfilled in Christ then, apart from political life, or is it fulfilled in Socratic, or not not Socratic, but in uh, in uh, some kind of Christendom? And with that, again, I'll redirect all attention back to the previous talk. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to this presentation from the George Buchanan Forum Conference. We have many more that you can check out at our website at TGBF.org. You can also find us on YouTube or on your favorite podcasting platform. In true free market fashion, we're entirely crowdfunded by the generous support of people like you. If you'd like to help our work, you can set up one-time or recurring donations at TGBF.org. The best way for others to hear about us is from their friends. So please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing our material. We greatly appreciate it.